0: We are releasing this episode with appreciation for Mother's Day, knowing many of us have not been able to hug or physically connect with our parents for weeks now.
1: Our guest for this episode is international author and educator Muriel Endersby.
0: And full disclosure, Rachel. Mm -hmm.
1: She's my mom. Yay! And I've only seen you mom on Zoom since mid-March. So mom, happy Mother's Day to you. I love you. And thanks for doing this interview.
0: And happy Mother's Day to all of you holding down the fort at home in our communities. We send this podcast to you with much appreciation Mm -hmm. and love.
1: Thank you for listening to Family 360. Muriel Endersby's work lays the foundation for children in their journey to literacy and love for reading. Her work has taken her all over the world, providing important groundwork for teaching and learning patterns during the early years of life.
0: Muriel is the author of Fun Family Phonics Reading Program. She advocates for education in developing countries, providing children access to literacy and the English language, both necessary steps into increased opportunity. So we decided to do a special episode release for Mother's Day, mm-hmm. and even though this can be heard at you know any time of the year.
1: Yeah, well, mothers can be celebrated at any time of the year as well, so that's okay.
0: Yeah, well, that's true. But this is a special episode because our guest today,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Muriel Endersby, is your mom.
1: Yeah, she is.
0: And I wondered if that is a little strange for you, if it was a little odd to be interviewing your mom and trying to delve into her life her life and her psyche and her work and trying to elicit things that possibly you haven't heard before.
1: Oh, well, she and I have actually worked a lot together uh, in educational settings, mm-hmm. but I loved I love doing this interview. She's a remarkable woman. She's dedicated much of her life to education of mm-hmm. children, but particularly of educators all around the world. Mm-hmm.
0: And she's very passionate about literacy mm-hmm. and how it sparked through the process of learning. Ready to read. Yes, yes.
1: Yeah, and that process is really important, and that's what she's going to talk about today. And
0: she has such great things to say. She
1: does. Reading is
2: the basis of all academic subjects, and children who read well and enjoy it will do far better in all academic subjects, and not only in that, but in life itself. Reading is everything that they come across. They have to be able to read.
1: I'm Rachel Cram.
0: And I'm Roy Salmon. And welcome to Family 360.
1: Conversations exploring life together. This is kind of a fun and special day because I'm interviewing Muriel Endersby, an author, and educator, and also my mother. So, welcome, Mom. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're going to spend a little bit of time hearing about your life and your understanding of literacy for children And before we start that, I'm going to ask you a question we use at the beginning of a lot of our interviews. Aristotle said, give me a child at seven and I will show you the adult. Is there a story or experience from your childhood that reflects the adult that you are today?
2: Well, I'm sure there are many experiences, but I'm going to choose just one. I'd always wanted to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. My mother wanted to be a teacher and wasn't able to be a teacher, so she was very happy when all six of her daughters mm, turned her out to be teachers. Wow, <laughs> yeah. But during the war we lived in London and during the bombing, eventually our house was so badly bombed that we had to be evacuated. It was a very traumatic experience for all of us because we all had to be separated when we came to Burton on Trent, which was where our place of evacuation was. And I can totally understand why teachers were hassled getting so many children in their class.
1: So many evacuees.
2: Yes, so many evacuees. And of course, we were kind of the tail end of them. Mm. So I remember the day very clearly when the principal took me into the classroom that I was to go into, opened the door and said to the teacher, this child is coming to your class. And the teacher shook her finger at him (laughs) and said, I thought I told you I would have no more evacuees. (laughs) And he said, I'm sorry, push me in and close the door. (laughs) And how old were you? I was about seven, Mm -hmm. six or seven. And they did eventually find a chair for me to sit on at the side of the room. But the strange thing to me was the only thought that went through my head was, when I'm a teacher, I'll never do that (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) to any child. Mm -hmm. And there were times later when I'd had classes of 46 kids And, you know, you just love them all. Doesn't matter what the situation is, Hmm. that they're a child.
1: Exactly. And I know, having watched you live a lot of your life, that you not only have treated children with that kind of respect that you so wanted to experience yourself, but you've also taught many hundreds, thousands of other teachers to do the same. You've traveled to China, India, Africa, on the invitation to educate teachers on literacy for children, but Mm -hmm. also on how to treat children with respect and dignity in the learning process. So amazing that that very traumatic event has affected you Mm -hmm. in beautiful ways, really. So you go around the world teaching teachers about how to love and care for children, but before you did any of this world traveling... You had to build yourself as a teacher. Can you tell about your first experience teaching in Canada?
2: Yes, it was really quite exciting. (laughs) Uh, Before I left England, I applied for some jobs in Canada. And I was thinking that when I got to Canada, they would do an interview. But instead of that, one day I got a slip of paper that says, sign the dotted line and the job's yours, which was a total surprise. Anyway, I came to Ontario and went to this school. It was really out of the way. It was an old school in a small town, and most of the children there were either First Nation children or immigrants. And I guess I got the job because there was a real teacher shortage, and they did like English teachers.
1: uh, Like teachers with English accents.
2: (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but certainly I still had a very broad English accent. In fact, at Christmas time, the parents were chuckling because the children were coming home with a British accent. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, when I started teaching, the most capable children were put into the one-two split class and I had all the rest. I loved the class. I thought they were delightful children and I had very few guidelines as to how I was to teach them. We were using the Dick, Jane and Sally series, which we'd used in England, which was fine, But the big shock came towards the end of the year when the principal, who was a very jolly fellow, Mr. Buckley, came into the classroom looking very glum and he said to me, I have a horrible thing to tell you, but tomorrow the inspectors or the examiners are coming in and they're going to test your class for literacy. And I said, what? (laughs) I I haven't heard of this. And he said, I'm sorry, I should have told you because all the other grade one classes have been preparing their children for this. And I said, oh, thanks a lot. (laughs) But he said, don't worry, don't worry. This class always comes bottom. So whatever happens is fine. So I thought, with nothing I can do now. The children have all gone home and tomorrow's the day.
1: (laughs) When you say have come bottom, is that like a district-wide? A district-wide assessment. Assessment. Um, I had
2: no idea that they did this, so it was all brand new to me.
1: So they they saw this straight grade one class as a class that would always be at the bottom? That's how it had been in the past.
2: Mm -hmm. So the next day, the inspectors came into the class and they gave them something to read and then to answer comprehension questions. I was in the classroom, but I couldn't do anything. I just had to watch. And I thought, I bet my kids could probably read that. I knew what I taught them, and I probably could answer those questions reasonably well, but it sure would have been nice if I'd had the warning. (laughs) So I forgot all about it. They took the papers away, and I saw nothing of it for a little while. And about three or four weeks later... My principal, Mr. Buckley, came bounding into my classroom. He could hardly speak. His face was red, and he was so excited. And he said, you'll never believe this, but your class came top in the whole district. Mm. I was just shocked. I thought there must be a mistake. (laughs) But I was really happy and proud of them. I thought they've done really well, and I told them so. Mm.
1: So what do you think made the difference? What brought a class that had typically been at the bottom to the top of the district. What was the change? Well, I think I came in with a different approach to
2: teaching. The approach in Canada at that time was very much a teacher-centered approach. What does that mean? It meant that the teacher stood in front of the class. By the way, all of our desks were anchored to the ground, so you couldn't move them. And The teacher stood in front of the class, and the best teacher was the one where there was no sound in the classroom. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Well, I hadn't been brought up with that kind of background, and I would get the children up out of their seats, come and sit on the floor in the front because there was enough space, and I would keep eye contact with them and get them to talk. They did a lot of the talking because they could answer questions and, and ask me questions, and this was very different from what was going on in the other classrooms. And I honestly think that this was the difference in the score results. Mm.
1: You referred to a teacher-centered approach. So what
2: would you call your approach? The child-centered approach. Mm. where you're thinking in terms of what do the children need? What is it that each individual child needs to learn? And how can I help them do that?
1: And in general, Canada has moved very much towards that approach. Mm-hmm. But that story is just such a great reflection on how important approach is in teaching children literacy. Definitely. And definitely. Yeah,
2: there's no two ways about it. If children are engaged in any
1: subject, they're going to do far better. Can you tell us a little bit, why is reading important for children? Why is literacy important? Well, Reading is the basis
2: of all academic subjects. If children read well and they enjoy it, they're far more likely to do well in not only English, but history, geography, science, even math, because they can read the materials and they enjoy doing it. Mm. It's absolutely the basis of all academic subjects. And children who read well and enjoy it will do far better in all academic subjects. And not only in that, but in life itself. Reading is everything that Mm. they come across. They have to be able to read. Mm.
1: I've heard the saying, before grade three, you're learning to read. After grade three, you're reading to learn. And I think that reflects what you're saying. Yes, yes. Yes.
2: Well, there's a well-known author who puts it this way. He says, a child's attitude to reading Mm -hmm. is of such importance but more often than not, it determines his academic fate. Mm. Moreover, his experience in learning to read may decide how he feels about learning in general and even himself as an individual. Mm. And so often, children who don't read well, if they get behind in reading, their whole self-esteem starts to fall. So our ambition is to make learning to read an exciting adventure so that kids say, "I love reading." Mm-hmm.
1: When I look at it as an adult myself, I marvel that I ever learned to read. And I've marveled every time one of my children have learned to read because it is so complex. Putting letters together, which are so abstract for children, into words and then words into sentences, it's incredible that our brain can do that. And I know that you have some marvelous techniques to take that abstract word, that abstract letter, And bring it to life for children. And I've heard you talk about a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach, and that children really need both those approaches to be able to get their mind around this really complicated task. Can you talk a little bit about those two approaches?
2: Yes. In the school system there's been an emphasis on one and sometimes an emphasis on the other. The
1: pendulum kind of swings, doesn't it? it? swings With back and the, forth. what the philosophy
2: is at the time. That's right. The purist in the top-down approach will say that if you just read to children enough, they will pick it up.
1: Mm. Kind of like how we acquire language. Exactly. That's what they think. But mm. unfortunately,
2: many children don't. And when that particular philosophy has come into the schools, we end up with many children who slip through the cracks and don't really learn to read. The top-down approach is very important because the emphasis on reading to children is very important. Mm. They need lots of exposure to lovely Mm. literature, and we have so much of it. And it's free to go and get it from libraries. Mm. But they need more than that. Now, the opposite is the bottom-up approach, where you take the smallest element of the language which is the phoneme, which is where phonics comes from, and put those sounds into words, and words into sentences, sentences into stories, and build it that way. But it can be extremely boring. So what I have done is I have made the bottom-up approach, that's a phonics approach, really fun and interesting. Mm. But I haven't forgotten that you do need to read to children lots and lots. Mm -hmm. Probably can't read too much. So my approach is to do both at once.
1: Do you find right now in North American schools, would you say both of those approaches are probably used? Well, the interesting thing is that
2: when they are, children do well. But Mm -hmm. when there's a big pendulum swing to saying we're just going to do the um, top-down approach, we're going to forget about phonics, you have a whole generation who are lost, they Mm. can't read. There's lots of them that can't read. So it's very important that you have both. Mm -hmm.
1: What you're describing is very compelling. We want our children to feel good about themselves. We want them to succeed in school. How do we give our children that love for reading? Are there some steps, are there some suggestions that you have for instilling that kind of passion?
2: Well, if you're passionate about reading yourself, children will develop a real love of reading just by watching the parents doing it. We're so fortunate in Canada, there's all kinds of literature for children. Go to the library and you have a special section for children's Mm -hmm. books, and you just read all kinds of stories because the more a child gets to hear stories, the more excited they will be about learning to read mm. and children can sit on their parents' lap or be really close by them with their arm around them while they're reading the book. Let the children see the book. Mm. There's lots of wonderful pictures in children's books and often they can begin telling the stories themselves mm. and that builds literature for them in, as far as language is concerned and it's a great start. If you take the children to the library with you and show them the different books, you'll find that they'll pick out the ones that they want to, to read or you want you to read. I remember your son, for example, <laughs> he got turned on to reading when he came to Harry Potter, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> so different children have different interests mm-hmm. and to zoom in on their interest is very important and is often the key to getting off to a good reading start.
1: Yeah. And then there's always those children that want the same books read again and again. You know, I remember reading some particular Dr. Seuss books like 50 times because they just wanted to hear the story again and again.
2: And that's fine. That's fine because it helps them to get the flow of literature, how books are written. Books are not quite the same as ordinary speaking. And to be able to feel what literature feels like Mm -hmm. (laughs) is very important for children. Mm
1: I remember hearing you say once, and it just surprised me, but then it made so much sense, that one of the things that children need to understand in an early stage of life is a sentence or something written on a page is the words that we're saying written down. I remember that penny just dropping that, of course, that's not something that you can assume, that when Mm -hmm. they see words on a page, they know that's a printed version of what we can be saying from our mouths.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the things that I always have done with children when they have done a picture, for example. Tell me about your picture. And then I'd say, would you like me to write that? And it's like, really? (laughs) That can be (laughs) done? That can be done. (laughs) So I write what they have told me. And then they go home and they say, mommy, I can read. (laughs) Look, (laughs) this says, and they repeat off what they told me. And they start feeling... I think reading is going to be okay because I think I know how it
1: works. <laughs> yeah, I think that's something you can do at home with your kids too. And I love, I love that question. What did you say about the picture? How do you ask the question about the picture? They Tell me about your picture.
2: Don't say what is it because most pictures that children draw are happenings. They're not an isolated event. It's something that's happening. And they might say something like the children are all playing in the park. They are talking about the picture, but it's a continuous motion. It's not an isolated thing that happened. And that's the way they think, and that's the way you should write it down.
1: And I think the question, tell me about your picture, is so much better than what is it. Mm-hmm. Because if you say that, they almost look at you and say, do you mean you can't see what it is? <laughs> <laughs> and often it's just colors on the page. Yes. yeah. We don't acquire reading like we acquire language. Language, you listen to it, you hear it again and again, and your brain is able to interpret that, and that's how we learn to speak. Reading, with your top-down approach, has an aspect of that. We need to hear literature again and again to be able to translate it from print into our mind. But how in our brain do we acquire the process of reading? Well, it's
2: very different from speaking, Mm -hmm because there's just one area of the brain that deals with speech but when it comes to reading there are three different areas of the brain one area is where they hear the sounds like a says a ah. and then there's another area of the brain that puts those sounds together and puts them into a word for example cat right so they put the word together
1: so the sound goes into one area of the brain yeah, and then, and then it has to move to the next area of the brain to be able to put those sounds together. When they
2: put the sounds together. And there's a third area of the brain, which is really important, where it gives meaning to what they have said. So c- uh, to cat is not just an abstract word. It has, tells you it's a little furry animal, right, that you mm-hmm. love. <laughs> mm-hmm. And some children, particularly children with autism, they have a problem making that link. And they may be able to read, but they have no comprehension. And comprehending, understanding what you read, has to do with that third area of the brain.
1: Yeah, as a teacher, that's referred to as reading for meaning. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we can't assume all children can do that just because mm-hmm. a child or even an adult can read words sentences books doesn't mean that they can easily or correctly activate the meaning
2: mm-hmm. so it's really important when you're learning to read constantly put those three areas of the brain together
1: the sound then linking up the sounds together to make, make the word, word and mm-hmm. then associating with the actual an object object mm-hmm. can you give an example of how you would focus on that as a teacher or as a parent Wanting to enable those links or see if all those links are happening for a child.
2: Well, one of the things that we do when we're teaching word building is we put the sounds together. And then we always put it into a sentence to make sure they've understood what it is. So, for example, you've got k and a and t. Now, they know those as three separate sounds. But you run them together. K, a, t spells cat.
1: And then you might say something like, my cat says meow, and I pet him. And he's
2: very soft. I love my cat. Yeah. So they see an object for the actual word that they have said. This is really important because we assume that children can do this, and it's not necessarily so. Mm. So there's three steps, and we constantly go back over them and make sure they've got them. So you say the sounds, put the sounds together, and sometimes a song will help hmm. because if you say k a t spells cat, it's easier than saying k a t and the child says Table <laughs> <laughs> They haven't got it. They haven't got the the sound blending together. So it's good that they so have you
1: put a little tune behind it. A little tune <laughs> and so that, that it can, they can get a flow to it. Mm-hmm. When a child's struggling to read, I think a natural question for parents is, do they have a reading disability? Is there something that is hindering their approach to reading? Now, sometimes it is just that they haven't been drawn to it yet, but sometimes there is a learning disability that's taking place. How does a parent start to make assessment? What would start to raise the warning bells for you? Well, I, I, think it's, I
2: think if the child is in a good school and the other children are learning well and they just seem to be really not getting it, you may need to go and ask for an assessment. And first of all, of course, you need to talk with their teacher mm. because their, their teacher needs to know that you are interested and you're concerned and that you would like to help. Mm. Because, does that make a big difference because to teachers? I, it does. And I do think that parents need to know they are the number one teachers of their children.
1: Mm.
2: They sometimes that can think, feel a little
1: overwhelming because I can, think mm-hmm. parents don't see themselves as <laughs> teachers. They kind of think they're sending their children off to school for that.
2: I think it's really important that parents understand what the children are learning. Mm. When I'm talking about how to be a teacher, I tell them it's really important that parents are included. Particularly at the young age, the parents are really on board when it comes to helping. And... It seems like it's something that they can do fairly easily, and it is. If the teacher just takes a little bit of time to explain things that they can do at home, for example, when you're learning the sounds of the letters, tell them, look around the house and see if you can find something that begins with the letter of the week. (laughs) I remember one little boy going all over the house and saying, Oh, I I think I'll take my ball. Um, What about my bat? I can't take the bird. Can I take the bird <laughs> So he was really thinking in terms of the first sound being a b sound. Mm.
1: And parents can get involved in that. They can.
2: They can. And they're practicing what they've learned in school and getting excited about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And those two things are really important when it comes to learning. Mm-hmm. And the parents are getting excited too. I remember one time a parent couldn't come to school because she was teaching elsewhere. And she sent a little boat to school with her child. And on the boat it said, Baby, brothers, beautiful, big, blue boat.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She was making it clear
2: she was on board. (laughs) And the child was too. So to make it exciting, make Mm. the whole learning process exciting, and to get parents on board is so important. Mm.
1: You made a comment saying that teachers respond when they see that parents are interested. How does that affect what happens for the child in their class? Well, I think more than anything else, it affects a child because
2: home and school are together and they feel like we're all in this together and it's a fun experience. Mm. If a parent is not engaged, it shows, but you do the best you can still as As a teacher. teacher. (laughs) Right.
1: How important is the learning to read journey? It is vital.
2: I want to tell a little story. My husband and I both had to learn Latin in school. I had a. Horrible teacher who would come in and say, Okay, open your books at page number three, decline this verb. And I thought, Oh, this is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, my husband, who was here in Canada, had an excellent teacher for Latin. He loved it, he made it really come alive for him. Mm. He loved it so much that his first degree is in Latin. Mm. That really blows me away because I hated Latin. (laughs) So the way a child learns anything will determine a great deal about how well they like it and how well they'll do at it. We have to make learning to read an exciting adventure so that children say, I love reading.
0: Hmm.
1: So, Muriel, as we draw this interview to a close, amidst all the responsibilities and opportunities we have with our children, Is there a central message or key piece of advice you see as most important to consider as we lay a path towards literacy with our children?
2: Well, I would like to say to parents, the one thing that you can do with your child is to read books to them. There are so many books in our libraries, and they're free. Bring back a pile and read to your kids. Even once they get into reading themselves, still read to them because literacy is such an important part of our life and if children can read well and they enjoy it they will succeed in not only academics but in so many other areas too Hmm.
1: well thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge with us today I enjoyed this really over
2: something I'm so passionate about learning to read well you've instilled it in me so thank you (laughs)
0: So, as we were listening to Muriel, I was thinking of a well-known Mother's Day poem by American poet Strickland Gillian. Have you have you heard the reading, Mother?
1: It's a poem. Yeah, I, I don't know. Tell what's, <laughs> I tell it to me, and I'll tell you. Okay.
0: Here are the closing lines: You may have tangible wealth untold, caskets of jewels and coffers of gold. Richer than I, you can never be. I had a mother who read to me.
1: Mm, nice.
0: And, of course, fathers also read to their children, but, you know, this is a Mother's Day episode. Yeah.
1: Did you read to your kids growing up?
0: Yeah. Lots of Cat in the Hat, Dr. Seuss, Mm -hmm. Good Night Moon, Mm -hmm. and Canada's Robert Munch.
1: Oh, my kids loved him, too. There's no app to replace your lap.
0: (laughs) What is that? 19th Century Tennyson? (laughs) No, did you just make that up? (laughs)
1: <laughs> no.
0: No, I've heard it before, but it's true. So clearly you were read to as a child.
1: I was. And every Saturday for all my childhood, we went to the library. We stocked up with books for the week ahead. That was and my life.
0: your mom obviously practiced what she preached. Yeah, you
1: can't overdo reading to your kids.
0: So thank you, Muriel, for the interview, and thank you for your wisdom.
1: Thank you, Mom. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe.
0: Rate the show, leave a comment, and tell a friend. Each Family 360 episode ends with music inspired by the words of our guest.
1: You heard bits and pieces of this music during this interview. Here's the song L-M-N-O-P.
0: And you can find it in our resource section for every episode or wherever you stream music.
1: I'm Rachel Cram.
0: I'm Roy Salmond. And thank you so much for listening to Family 360. 360.
1: To continue these conversations, find us at Family 360 on our website, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.
0: We'd love to journey with you.